So we do start a new sermon series today, and this is the, uh, the slide for it. Um, it'll continue for the next two months. It's called Overwhelmed But Overcoming, uh, and, and Jarrett did the artwork for that too, so people behind the scenes volunteering and helping. Um, we're going to look at topics like anxiety and stress, like depression, uh, like regret and shame, um, uh, look at a lot of different things, grief, a lot of different things that overwhelm us in society, uh, that overwhelm us, me, and you in our personal lives. And what we're going to do is say, since life can be overwhelming, we're going to talk honestly about that um, and the things that overwhelm us, but also talk about the hope that we have in overcoming those things. So in the darkness, it means that we see the light of Jesus that gives hope and dispels darkness. At least that, and certainly there's more than that too, of what Christ does for us. And so this is the series we begin. The conversation started like this. I thought I would have outrun the dark days of my past by now, but it keeps catching up with me. I can't outrun it. It's haunting me. I have done many things that I'm ashamed of and have not spoken of. I'm barely hanging on. I have had that conversation or one similar to it many times over. Guilt, shame, and regret are things that we all face because we are human and we make bad decisions in life at times. And so the darkness seems like it closes in on us. The past overwhelms us and it becomes discouraging. It might be accompanied by a family history that you seem like you are unable to escape or outrun. It might be by trauma or depression or other mental health complications maybe. But regret always arises because you regret making choices think, man, it's still there. And what happens inside your head is the voice of shame speaks up and whispers, not only did you make bad choices, but you are a bad person. And we carry shame like that. How does God handle such poor choices? How does God handle rebellion, living in darkness and shame? When his people make bad choices, then they try to pretend to cover it up like there's nothing wrong and, or they could outrun their failures. What does God do? Today we're going to turn to a true story. It's one of the most graphic stories in the Bible um, to see how people overcome regret and shame. So parents, here's your PG-13 warning. We believe the Bible. We read the Bible. I'm only reading what's in it. Um, and so you may need to have conversations with me or with your children later. Um, the story is about a prophet named Hosea and his wife, Gomer. She is most likely a prostitute, and God tells Hosea to marry her to demonstrate the kind of love he has for his people who have nothing desirable in them and, and run away all the time. And so he marries her, 
only to find out that then she commits adultery and goes to live with another man. What is Hosea supposed to do with his wife? And what is God saying he does with his people? Well, let's read this story. Hosea, it's a minor prophet. Um, The words will be on the screen. If you're looking for it in your Bible, probably go to the table of contents to try to find it. Hosea chapter 1. We're going to read a couple of verses from chapter 1 so you see the historical context. And we're going to read this this speech from God, this poem in chapter 2. So hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for whom the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then in verse 6 it says, She conceived again and bore him a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no, no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people for this next son that was born. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Gomer has these children, right? This is what's happening and saying, my people have walked away from me and you as my prophet are going to demonstrate this. So now we'll pick up in chapter 2 and read chapter 2 beginning in verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the days she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them and acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths." She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, a false god. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. And my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to, co- to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, 
and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which we believe is holy and true and without error. It is forever. Will you use it in our hearts to shape our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about being overwhelmed. When you are overwhelmed by your regrets, you need to understand and know that God pursues you. Now that might be scary. You might be saying, I'm trying to get away from God. I don't know if I want him pursuing me. But the message that God is giving through the prophet Hosea is that he does pursue us. And so I want to talk with you about this in three ways and what happens in this passage here. The first is that when, you, when your regret haunts you, you already know that God has caught you. That's why you're being haunted by it. You've been caught. This is what happens. This is what is being laid out. Hosea to the people saying, you're caught. Not only his wife Gomer, but the people of Israel, you've been caught cheating caught seeking other lovers. We see this in verse 5, right away, when he says, and I think we have slides for this, you can put on the screen, I will go after my lovers. Right? In verse 5, they're seeking other lovers. Again, in verse 13, caught seducing other lovers or idols. In verse 13, where it says, she adorned herself with a ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. And furthermore, it's not just seeking and seducing, but it's sleeping with other lovers and producing offspring. In verse 4, being children of whoredom. So right, here's the whole point, is that Gomer has sought other lovers, seduced other lovers, gone after with them, and had kids with them. But the message that God is speaking here to them is saying, Israel, you are the same. You have chased after other gods. You've committed spiritual adultery. And you've had kids, you're raising your kids to the foreign gods. What are you doing? The way that you shape their habits and train them to do all the things that they're doing in the world, but not follow me. Not only are they caught, but he says in verse 11, you're caught and you don't even care. Now he doesn't say you don't care, but notice it seems like this is a clue that they don't care. In verse 11, if you put that on the screen, it's at, they're acting as if nothing happened. Right? He says, I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. In other words, when God is saying he's going to take this away, they are going along to their weekly worship, to their special feasts, to all the things, and they're going through the motions like everything is fine, except for that they're cheating on God, chasing after other lovers. Their hearts are running away from him. God takes our spiritual adultery 
just as seriously as if it happened in your marriage? What if your spouse said to you, I was kissing another today. I hope you don't mind. Be like, well, what what do you mean? I, I hope you don't mind. You would mind. Why would we be surprised when When God says the same thing, look, I've made covenant with you, I've sought you out, and you are mine, and then you walk away. Should we expect anything less from God? What are you chasing after or pursuing? What are the pleasures and passions in running away from God? I I wonder a lot about COVID. I don't, I mean, I don't know everything about that and the spiritual effect of that, but, but when we read that God took away all their feasts and everything, I wondered, was God getting our attention and stopping everything around the world for a year or two or however long it was? Right? I mean, think about it. There was a time where churches didn't even meet, okay? Um, And we met online and did different things. But boy, that was a wake-up. But not only that, you couldn't go to concerts. You couldn't go to football games or sporting events. I mean, all the American ways in which we we celebrate in which we worship the idols of our culture. (laughs) We're taken away. Is God saying, wake up. You're chasing after the wrong things. Is he saying to the church, wake up. You're chasing after the wrong things. Do you get all spiritually dressed up to go to church and put on that nice shiny self like you've got everything together and it's all good? We all know that's a lie. I don't have it all together, and I know you don't have it together. We're sinful people. That's what we sung about. We admit that, right? That yes, we have sinned, and we are sinful people. And that means we all have regrets. And to some degree, we all carry shame. Maybe to somewhat normalish levels, and maybe it's overwhelming to you. God has caught you chasing after others. But not only that, the second thing we're going to talk about today is that when your regrets haunt you like this, you're probably feeling not only caught, but condemned. I can't get away. I can't escape. I'm so bad. I've so messed up. I'm so guilty. I'm so, I'm such a wreck. You feel condemned. God takes sin seriously. And here, he even gives that message to Israel that that they're condemned in a way. They're caught, and yeah, God's going to bring discipline on his people to wake them up. Notice what he does. In verse 2, he withdraws privileges. In verse 2, he says to them, you are not my wife, and I'm not your husband. Right? Okay, no longer do we have this privilege of pretending we're married when you're chasing off after others. But he also withdraws provisions. Look at verse 9. He says, I will take back my grain, my wine, and my flax, which I give you. I'm going to take it all back. I'm withdrawing those provisions. And in verse 12, it's clear that as chasing after other lovers, they thought that the others were providing all those benefits. These are the wages which my lovers have given me. Now, notice what they're doing there. God's saying, I'm withdrawing my provisions. Why? Because they're saying, you don't really give us those provisions, God. We got them anyways. I mean, how often do we do this? We don't credit God with the good stuff. We credit God with the bad stuff. 
This happens all the time. Something bad happens and we don't know what to do and we can't explain it. We're like, why would God do that? Something good happens in life, man. Look at that. This is awesome. Where's God? I don't know, but this is awesome. Like, God does all the bad stuff, none of the good stuff. We don't give him credit for that. But that's what they're doing. They're saying, no, we've got all this other stuff by chasing after these other things. God, you didn't give us that. I did that. My lover did that for me. And God's saying, fine, I'm going to remove it all. He withdraws provisions. Not only does he withdraw privileges and provisions, but then he withdraws preservation in verse 10. Notice what he says here. He says, I am going to expose, uncover the lewdness, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. That's kind of a scary thing. I mean, it's meant to be scary. Like, what does that mean, rescue her out of my hand? In other words, God is saying, I'm going to deal with my people Israel. And they're not going to escape my discipline that I'm going to use to, to discipline her and deal with her. They will not escape the righteous anger of God. To admit that we're sinners is not an easy thing to do, perhaps. But conviction of sin is a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm not here to tell you the way to overcome is simply not to worry about the choices of your past. I'm not saying to you it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. Even if I did tell you that and I just said, you know, just redefine it all and say whatever you want to say about it. Make yourself feel better. Even if I said that, you wouldn't feel better. You would still carry it. You still carry it. Why is that? Because God has made you with an innate natural sense of right and wrong. And you know there's certain things that are just wrong. And it's hard for you to get over that. And it haunts you in that. So for me to simply say, don't worry about it, does no good. Conviction of sin is something God does and is actually a good thing. You cannot escape it because that's how he's made you. You feel the weight of that. But you might be thinking though, okay, but that just makes me feel more overwhelmed. And that's true, it does. But remember, I don't want to leave us there either. That's not my intent. I want to help you overcome so that you can deal with your regrets and deal with your shame in good and right ways. Because you cannot ignore them. To leave them in the darkness does no good. It has to come out into the light. And you're like, whoa, 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 stop right there. No, I don't think so. Look, I'm not asking you to stand up here and come tell everybody. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, as long as you keep something hidden, you're not really dealing with it. You have to confess it to God. You may need to talk to a pastor or a counselor. You may have to confess it to your spouse or somebody else. But it has to come out in the open. It's like a wound that you keep covering up and just festers and the infection spreads. Until you get it open and drain it, you're not going to recover well from regret and the shame that you carry because of it. Now, I am not a professional in talking about shame. I want to say that from the start. Like, if, if you're carrying tons of shame from lots of things in your life, you probably should see a counselor. They're much better equipped to help you deal with that than I am. But I am happy to help you talk about it, confess it, and get help from God. You may be thinking like, I don't know if I'm coming back next week. 
kind of overwhelmed already. Being overwhelmed by conviction of sin, being caught and condemned by it, is the romance of grace. What do I mean by that? I mean, that's at the point in which God says, now I'm going to show you my mercy. Because all you have left at that point is to beg for mercy. You're at the bottom of your rope. You've got nothing else to do. Like, Lord, have mercy, help me. That's all that there is left. Someone, uh, I don't know who, so I'm just saying someone, rewrote the words several years ago, maybe a decade ago or so, to Amazing Grace, um, just changing uh, one word in the line, right? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves someone like me. But the way John Newton wrote it was, saved a wretch like me. John Newton was convicted of a sin because he was a slave trader, was in a storm in his ship and in the Atlantic Ocean, thought he was going to die and cried out to God for mercy, and God saved him, and he knows his sin. He's convicted by it. He knows he is wretched, and he says, that's why I need this grace. So when we change the words to make it say, well, I think I'm just going to not be so down on myself to call myself wretched, but to say, save someone like me, then let me just suggest this. Just take the word amazing out too. What's so amazing about that? If you're not a wretch and you're pretty good, okay, great. You want a little grace here? Have some. If you're not going to say the word wretch, remove amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. If you are condemned, what you need is mercy. You're begging for grace. And the beauty of what happens in this passage here, the beauty of what you need to know when you're feeling overwhelmed by your regret that haunts you, that leaves you feeling condemned, is God reaching through the darkness to you, lifting your chin and courting you, saying, I'm going to win you back. That's what we see that happens here. He doesn't leave his people caught and condemned. He pursues them and he courts them again. What? Yes, despite the adultery and the prostitution and the harlotry running and chasing after others, God says, I'm going to win you back to myself. Look at what it says. Verse 14. Let's put that on the screen. It says, therefore, therefore, after all of this, therefore, I am going to allure her. I will speak tenderly to her. I will irresistibly draw her, not harshly, but tenderly. In verse 16, he goes on. In in those days, you will call me my husband, not my Baal, not some just one of the gods that you have. No, you will know me as one who loves you, not just another god. In verse 20, he says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to remarry you. Though you've run, I'm taking you back. I'm going to remarry you. Verse 23. I will have mercy on the one I said to name no mercy. And I will say to the one named not my people, you are my people. Here he's saying, I have no regrets about you and I'm removing your shame. This is not who you are. You now are mine. You are loved by me. You have mercy. You are mercy that I have given you. 
it's not just nice poetry either. Because while we don't have time, you could go on and read in chapter 3 what happens. Gomer, Hosea's wife, when she runs off on him, is sold as a slave then by her other lovers and taken away into another place. And God says, Gomer, go after her and get her. It's like, okay. So he goes after her, he finds her, and he redeems her. He buys her back from the slave master to say, come on, you're coming back with me. And he gets her back. Not just as her master, though, but as her loving husband and takes her back. Because that's the picture God wants you and I to understand. Is that he chases you down. And he says, you're mine. I'm not letting you go. Don't wander off chasing after other lovers. They can't deliver. You're mine. Derek Kidner, a author, theologian, in writing about this, says the significance of the message of Hosea for us today is at least this. That God loves the loveless and values the otherwise worthless enough to let the ransom for them cost him everything, but equally that he will never be content to form one side of any triangle, still less a polygon, or to be the bridegroom of a day or two. He will settle for nothing less than love, nothing shorter than forever. That's what God is saying to his people, to me, to you. This is what we sing to ourselves and to our kids. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But that is no longer what defines me because I am a child of God, loved by him. I am his spouse, I'm I'm joined to him. And this is what God does for us. The language of Jose is that of love and wooing back together. But I'll tell you another way the Bible describes it too is that of of a battle and that of victory. Beverly, I didn't ask you if I could do this, but I've done it before. I stood next to Roger's hospital bed when he was dying. He lived a long life, served in the Korean War, He also did a lot of wrong things, which apparently came to his mind in his dying days in the hospital. Because I stood there, and Beverly there too. Things came to his mind. He said, I've chased after other things, a lot of other things that I shouldn't have. I've done a lot of things in my life, a lot of wrong things. When he's facing death, when he knows he's facing the Creator, he says, "I, I don't know, I've done a lot of stuff. And as I sensed these were popping into his mind as a way of regret, I reminded him, Roger, I said, you know, your hope is not in your victory and your accomplishments. Your hope is in the victory that Jesus won for you on the cross. A smile, a grin cracked out across his face. Laying in that bed, he rose his hand straight up and he says, I have the victory in Christ. No shame, no regret overcoming when being overwhelmed in the strength of Jesus, in the love of the one who pursues you. As we talk about being overwhelmed, this is the anchor that you have to remember the whole way through. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to remember this, to remember that when we are overwhelmed, you are the one 
who is there pursuing us, coming after us, when we want to hide in the shadows that we need to be willing to come out into the light where you are. Lord, will you remind us that you've never loved us because of how good we are. You've loved us because of how good you are. Not because of our victory, but because of your victory. So Jesus, woo us by your amazing grace. By the depth of the love that you have for us, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.